Hi there, it's Kanika. This is an episode from the That's Total Mom Sense archives, which date back to 2019. If you're new here, there's a chance you haven't heard this one yet. And if you've been tuning in since the beginning, you'll surely be able to gather new ideas this time around. I know I have. I hope you enjoy it. On to the show. Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making this show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. We all know and love M. Night Shyamalan as a world-renowned director, producer, and actor who was labeled the next Spielberg by Newsweek in 2002. His films have grossed over $3 billion globally with cult classics like The Sixth Sense, which received nominations for the Academy Award for Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, Signs, The Last Airbender, and The Unbreakable Series. We may also be fans of Salika, his daughter, who is a singer-songwriter and wrote an original song for his recent release, Old, and has a voice as smooth as silk, reminiscent of old-school R&B. But today, I'm honored to interview M. Knight's wife, Bhavna Waswani Shyamalan, who stays away from the limelight a bit. She is the silent strength of the family and is the glue who is keeping it all together. For more than 15 years, Bhavna Shyamalan, PhD, has served in her role as co-founder and vice president of the M. Night Shyamalan Foundation. The foundation focuses on discovering and supporting grassroots leaders around the world who are moving depressed communities out of poverty and oppression. These global leaders are empowering their communities by supporting social justice, equality, and access to basic needs such as food, water, and education. With a deep belief in human dignity and freedom as a birthright, as well as in our joint responsibility to become participants in the fight for social equality and justice, have been Dr. Shyamalan's driving force in creating and steering the efforts of the foundation. With an international upbringing and global perspective, Dr. Shyamalan has developed a keen awareness of the power of poverty to determine the life course of individuals, families, and communities by severely limiting opportunity and choice. The foundation leaders work to eliminate those barriers. More recently, Dr. Shyamalan has focused on helping most disenfranchised communities, the forgotten and disposable people entrapped and exploited by modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Although born in India, Bhavna was raised in Hong Kong before her family moved to the U.S. An immigrant herself, she is keenly aware of the challenges posed to immigrants in any new country. Having traveled widely, however, her exposure to different people and cultures has not only reinforced her belief in the gift diversity brings, but has also deepened her commitment to valuing each individual life. Dr. Shyamalan oversees the foundation's international grants, the implementation of its vision and mission, strategic growth, fundraising, and overall operations. 
Additionally, Dr. B, as she's known in the fitness world, is co-owner at Vibe Vault Fit, a boutique fitness and wellness studio in Pennsylvania, and she's been teaching dance fitness classes since 2011. Dr. B believes working out can be inspired and should address health and fitness in all aspects, including body, mind, and spirit. Her goal is to help you make your own wellness a priority and claim the life that is waiting for you. Earlier in her career, Dr. Shyamalan worked as a therapist in the counseling centers of Swarthmore College and St. Joseph's University. She earned her doctorate in clinical developmental psychology from Bryn Mawr College with a BA in psychology from New York University. Bhavna and her husband, M. Knight Shyamalan, have three daughters and they reside in Pennsylvania. Bhavna, it's such a pleasure to have you on That's Total Mom Sense today. I'm so happy to be here today. Well, let's start from your childhood. Um, You know, you've had a very international kind of exposure from the onset. So tell us a little bit about it. My parents were both born and raised in India. But when they got married, they left India and they were in Africa for a little bit. So Uganda, and I spent my first year of life in Uganda. I don't really remember anything about it, but Mm -hmm. I always have this affinity to Africa and all the countries there. And then when I was one years old, it was the time of Idi Amin, we moved to Hong Kong and I lived there until I was 17. And so did all of my high school in Hong Kong. And then we had to move because my father's company closed and he actually went through bankruptcy at the time and he got a job here in the States. And so we moved to the States and we were in New Jersey for a while. Mm -hmm which for me was such a different experience because I had never even seen a house and I didn't really understand what a suburb was. I went to school for college in New York. You know, we've lived here ever since, but then when uh, my husband and I got married, he grew up in Philly, so I'm in Philly now. The relationship that a girl, um, especially as an adolescent, has with her father truly shapes her, her character and mindset. So tell me a little bit about that. I'm a psychologist by degree and Mm -hmm. I don't practice. I thought I wanted to be a therapist when I was studying and I went all the way and got my doctorate in clinical psych. And then it was a clinical developmental program. So we did a lot of work in developmental psychology. And one of the studies that I found really interesting was that they found that girl's self-esteem is very much tied to what her father how her father interacts with her and how her father sees her more than her mother. My mother never finished high school. My father didn't really end up finishing college. He did start and there weren't really doctors in our family and I didn't have any model, but I was like, I'm going to keep go, go all the way. I'm going to get the highest degree I can possibly get. Right. And that's because my father believed in it, you know, and one of the things that he had said to me, I think I was somewhere between the age of 13, 14, very impressionable kind of age, you know, the, that those teenagers. And at that time in our family, we used to pray every night. You know, we had a Monday, which is the temple at home, mm-hmm. which is very traditional. And we used to pray and then read a passage from our Holy Scriptures, which is a Bhagavad Gita. We would read it passage and then interpret it. My father one time said, when I was explaining something, I thought about a passage, he goes, I like the way you think. And that was everything to me. Like, I feel like I centered my whole life around that. And that became 
something that I grabbed onto and held for my whole entire life as to who I wanted to be, who I aspire to be. I wanted to aspire to be that person that he was proud of as much as, you know, remember that he saw that in me maybe at an early age. So maybe I did have something that I could contribute to the world in that realm because he thought so. Let's see. Your um, your mom is was very involved in uh, the Indian community, and she was a disciple of Dada Vaswani, whom you know yeah. I revere and respect as well. Yes. So tell us a little bit about her, you know, work and charitable work. Ever since she was a little girl, followed even the predecessor of Dada J P Vaswani, who was the person that we knew during our lifetime. He's passed on now, but then. His predecessor, Dada T.L. Vaswani, was who she initially followed. Uh And she's the type of disciple that anything they say, like she won't make a move in her life or a decision in her life without their blessing. Their blessing, wow. Yeah, so her faith is that strong, you know, and that's how she goes about it. I have myself a very conflicted relationship with that kind Mm -hmm. of idea. I mean, I would think of myself more as a spiritual person. And I'm very happy that we had religion in our upbringing, because I think it's very grounding. And and the value system is one that I think was super important and impressive on us when we were growing up. So my mom is very, she's never been into monetary things or um, materialistic things. She's always been super simple, you know, like to her, the spirituality matters, the religion matters and being good matters. And so I think we definitely got a lot from, from that value system, you know, and I'm happy to have had that. The piece of it that's difficult for me is the dog dogmatism of yeah. religion, you know, right. and the certain things that you have to do or have to be to be an okay person. And (laughs) And it's like, who's actually determining all this? (laughs) Exactly. And I think the only way you can learn and grow is to take that risk, make the mistake, have the agency, have the responsibility to make it your own. Each step I make is is a step that I've decided to make. And I have to be responsible for whether it goes right or whether it goes wrong. And if it goes wrong, then what's spiritual is about accepting it. When you went to New York, um, Mm -hmm. that's where you met um, M. Knight or Manoj. Uh, So tell us about how that (laughs) transpired. (laughs) Yes, well, I wasn't allowed to date. (laughs) Yeah, okay, yes. (laughs) So we didn't date each other until the Oh my goodness. No. Um, so I we met I met him through a friend of mine in college. We were in the same friend group. I didn't have a lot of people that I dated just because I wasn't really allowed to. It was a big deal. Like when you're grown up in that culture and you're told you're supposed to have an arranged marriage, you know, anything you do, you know has big consequences. So <laughs> yeah. you don't date unless you think it's going to be a person you're going to marry. At least that's kind of how I approached it. We were friends for about a year before we even told each other we liked each other. Right, right. And, oh, um, yeah. And and he was just very unusual. You know, at the time he was different from people that I have have met. And 
he was in film for I'd never met anybody who wanted to do film. Nobody I'd known had ever been in film. And mm. it, it, he was creative and artistic and funny. And so those were all things that I found very intriguing and interesting. And um, we could just talk for hours. Oh. So, but I didn't think I should date him in the beginning. And we just really liked each other. And then I decided, you know what? I'm just going to allow myself this piece of happiness. And then when we graduate, I'm going to just get an arranged marriage. And that's what I'm supposed to do and and blah, blah, blah. But it was really funny because then we did, it came up to the time of graduation and he and I ended up graduating together. And he was supposed to move to LA to pursue film. And I was going to go to a wedding in Manila. Thought we'd, you know, my mom would introduce me to some guys and we would, you know, I'd do the arranged marriage thing. And then I got into a fight with my mother mm-hmm. over a job <laughs> that I wanted. I wanted to work at Harlem Hospital and I was going for an interview for the job on one day and the night before my mother and I got into a big argument about it and, and about some other things. I don't even remember what, but I was just so mad and childhood. I was like, I'm not going just with adamant. you to yeah. yeah. Like I'm not going with you. And so <laughs> I didn't go with her and she went. And so, and the night didn't leave for LA. And so we just ended up solidifying like, okay, we really want to be together that <sighs> summer. And what do you think, you know, Knight found intriguing in you? He said that when he met me, like we bumped into each other on the street through our mutual friend. And he said he went home that day to his dorm room and told his roommates that that I just met my wife. <laughs> when you know, you know. I, yeah, I guess so. So, you know. Wow. Wow. He's he's pretty strong. Like he has a very strong sense of what he wants and clear view and vision you know as you guys were starting out you mm-hmm. um you know as a therapist and him as a budding filmmaker you know it's it must have been hard to make ends meet but you had all the trappings you needed to get by you know when i told my mom and parents that i wanted to get married to him um of course we had to ask dada first mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, we sent him a seven page letter and then he sent kind of like an emissary to me to ask me, who's just somebody from our community to ask me questions. And one of the questions was, well, I'm going to be a filmmaker, you know, like, like really, you know, I mean, you may not make any money. And I said, I was okay with it because we just, you know, I said, I have a brain, I can work. I'm, I plan to work and I'm happy to do whatever. I think maybe we were a little bit naive about how risky it was, you know, even for my husband, like, When we think about it now to have, you know, he was one of the first Indian filmmakers. He was very young at the time. He was one of the youngest ever to hit certain milestones in his career path. And we decided to live in Philly because his family is here. Right, right. No one did that. Like, so we were, he was deciding already to be an outsider and still try to make it. He was already an outsider just by virtue of his culture and his age and but we still decided to live here because we wanted very much to raise our children here. But when we were first starting out, like our first several months, I was the one working and he was at home writing, you know, mm-hmm. screenplays. And um, and then we actually moved to his mom and dad's house for a year because we didn't really, I wanted to move I wanted to start my doctorate and I knew I had to start it in Philly because that's where we eventually wanted to move and have children. 
And because the program is so long, I figured I'd have children during the program. So there's a point at which our bank account was like dwindling to zero, (laughs) you know, and we're sitting up in Knight's sister's old bedroom and that's where we're living. And, you know, things seemed pretty rough at the point, but then he wrote the screenplay and it turned out like he'd made two movies before then, then that came out, but had a very limited release and really didn't, they didn't make anything at all. And then he wrote a screenplay and it sold in a bidding war, which was crazy for us. Like it actually hasn't gotten made yet, but it got sold in a bidding war. And that was when we made our, he made his first money. Wow. Look at yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. And then we got our own place. <laughs> of course, there are things that didn't turn out the way that he would have wanted, that what we would define as failures or what people may look like as failures. But to him, they're they're examples of how to learn to grow, right? They're they're experiences that teach you something. And yes, he will get down when things don't go well for for a period of time. And it does weigh heavily on him. He's not immune. He's a human being, but he always gets up. You know, one thing that you've shared with me is that when you had your children, you are someone who is an all-in kind of person. And you knew that you wanted to be this very devoted, hands-on mom. And so what was that motherhood journey like where you just really just stepped into that role and owned it? I think ever since I was little, I was so worried about how to be a good mom. I think part of me taking developmental psychology was about that too, because I wanted to learn how to be a good mom. Wow, so early on. Yeah, so early on. I mean, I even started learning how to cook early because I knew I had to cook for my family, having grown up here and having children that are going to be different from the way that I was raised. I wanted to raise them differently as well. And you know, the older generation, I think, sometimes have a more hands-off approach to parenting. And I think there's actually some really good stuff to do. I mean, I think that's good in in many ways. I don't really believe in helicopter parenting. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's good to give your kids some freedom and not always be on them every single moment. But at the same time, I didn't feel my, you know, the involvement of my parents enough. Like I didn't feel like I had necessarily guides through certain things that we were going through, especially Mm -hmm. because of the generational gaps, right? So they didn't know how to guide us through the world we were living in. And I wanted to know their world. I wanted to be involved in their world. So I was like, I was on, you know, on the board in their school. I was literally at my children's school every single day, volunteering, picking up like there, So I was super, super involved and I never really wanted to miss everything. And so I was still going through my doctorate at first and then I've always worked, Mm -hmm. but I've always worked part-time. And ever since Salika was my first, I only ever did anything part-time because I wanted to be home and I didn't want to miss any firsts. I didn't want to miss any plays. I didn't want to miss any like events, you know, anything. I was involved in homework all the time. I was, you know, my kids went to a private school and so they weren't bussed and I was adamant about picking them up and dropping them off. Um, my, my husband actually would drop off if he wasn't shooting a film mm-hmm. and I would pick up, but then if he was shooting, I would always drop off as well. 
And even there were times where, you know, schedules got really tight, especially if you start to have, you know, have more kids and there's more pickups and drop-offs and it gets super complicated and they all have activities. My husband would be like, you know, don't worry about pickup and drop-off. Like I'd spend an hour and a half in the car oh my gosh. On, yeah. on occasion, just taking them to things. And he's like, don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, this is so important because it's the only time they may talk to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, they say one sentence to me, like, yeah. I'm using it. I'm yeah. going to pick them up, and Aww. it doesn't mean you don't get tired. It doesn't mean that it's not hard and and you're not exhausted and you know, like you're not worn out and uh, or anything like that. But it was very important to me. It was important to me to bake them the cupcakes and to send that to school and, you know, not to, to do the to store bought. Cause I, I, you know, it's the little things you remember. I remember going to high school and one of my friends always had cupcakes in her lunchbox that her mother had made for her. Okay. I, yeah. was, I always thought that was such a sweet gesture of love. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to give that gesture to my kids. And so that was something that was important to me. And, you know, you have fostered a passion for dance and are now a celebrated Zumba instructor. (laughs) Yes. So tell us how Zumba just came into your life. So I, like you said, I love dance. I always had a passion for dance. I never had any training, but I came across Zumba when I started to try to take dance classes after having my first two children. I wanted to find something for me and then I wanted to find a form of exercise. And I really am not, I didn't consider myself athletic. I (laughs) was not, I was always the last on the team being picked in school and like running last in cross country. It was, it was not a good picture. So I laugh now that I think of myself as a fitness instructor, but I just started to look for dance as a form of doing something fun for myself and being active. And so I take adult dance classes. And once I took something in salsa, I took a salsa dance class and it was so much fun. I love salsa. I love music from around the world. Like I love any place in the world. I think just, I love beats. I love drum. I love something that's really primal. And so I took salsa, but it ended up being all couples and me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a drag. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the good thing about it was I got to dance with the instructor a lot of the time and he was so great. So it felt so good to be able to learn from, you know, him and dancing with him. But I didn't really, I felt very awkward otherwise. So I kept looking for salsa classes that didn't, you know, require couples. And somebody wanted to said to me, have you tried Zumba? And I said, no. So I searched for Zumba, did not know it was exercise and just went to my local Y and I walked into this class and there was this, you know, little Brazilian woman, Sandra goes, who was teaching the class. And I just absolutely fell in love with the format. And I left that class that day and I called my husband and I said, if I can just do Zumba for the rest of my life, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> So that was the beginning of it. And it's funny, like when you start getting into Zumba and, you know, on the days that you don't get to go to class for some reason, your family knows. And they're like, you didn't go to Zumba, did you? you? You're cranky. (laughs) (laughs) So it really became something that sustained me. Um, And I auditioned. I got this on tape. 
And when I ended up being on this DVD, then they asked me to teach a workshop at Zumba convention. I was not even teaching classes. I was not an instructor and I never imagined being an instructor, but said, yes, I'm going to worry about it later. Okay. So I got together a team of people that I wanted to work with, some experienced, some not experienced, and started putting together this Bali. It was in Bollywood and Bangra and put together this workshop for convention and our first convention out. It was so well received. It changed the trajectory of my life in some ways. And it gave me so much a sense of my own self, a sense of freedom, finding who I was, even through dance, which is something I think of it as therapy. You know, this Mm -hmm. dancing, just the happy hormones. I mean, (laughs) it's a release and there's so much out there now that research that's been done actually that proves the impact of dancing on your level of happiness, your self-esteem, and also things like Alzheimer's, you know, the, the, um, all of those neurons that are connecting through learning dance and connecting the right and the left brain they help stave off Alzheimer's. And um, so it's a very, very good thing to do. So I think I've been doing this over a decade now. And I now co-own a studio called Vibe Vault Fit with my partner. And we're both instructors in dance fitness. And we have like all these other things. And part of what I wanted to do with creating this studio was to both have the fitness aspect but also the wellness aspect, because I think body, mind, soul has to be developed together to really make the most you can out of life. Tell us about, you know, the foundation and, you know, it truly is like a way to honor your father and, and you know, his legacy, but you're just, you're doing so many different charitable works and projects. And uh, I know I would want my audience to get involved as well. So tell us. About yeah. Since I was little, I wanted to do something. I think this is from my parents, obviously, about giving back. And I always thought I wanted to open something. But given my husband's success and career, we did decide at some point that we would open a foundation. And so we have both pieces in the foundation. So we gave money to, you know, education was a big thing for both of us. And we did scholarships. And so we would give scholarships to inner city youth that were promising for college. Um, we did an adoption grant for kids being adopted from India to help with the, cause it's very costly to adopt. So yeah. we helped families here that wanted to adopt, but didn't have the money to do that. And we did a housing grant. We did a food after school program for food. So we did a bunch of things, but then realized at some point that, you know, and it was more my husband who was like, you know, we're not really having an impact. Like we're doing things, but we're not moving the needle in any Mm. grand way. We're not making systemic change. Right. But one day my father brought me an article from the New York Times. And it was about this woman, Usha, who had grown up in the slums in India. And it was a slum community that had been terrorized by some kind of slum lord, like a gang, you know, she had had this situation where this this guy was actually raping a neighbor of hers and he had killed and raped and pillaged all the families there they lived in terror and she went over and reported to the police the police came but 
in India, sometimes you there's a lot of corruption and you can buy yeah. off the police. You and just he had bought yeah. off the police. So they didn't do anything, but they told him that she had informed. So they went over to her place and were threatening her. And she stood up to them. She They had like this gas tank for whatever, for cooking. And she said, if you come, come anywhere near me, I'm going to blow up this, my house and I'm going to blow you up too. Okay. So they had a standoff from it for hours, but then he ended up leaving. This was the first time in the community anyone had ever stood up to this man. So she had started this kind of revolution of thought and of belief and in this community. And now they were all looking to her. And she was the only one in the community that had an education. I ended up going to India. My, my dad brought me this article and he's like, go help her. Yeah. Like, oh my god. Right, I don't know what to do, but I'm like, okay. So I connected with family friend who had done international grant work, went with her to India and met with Usha. We got a translator from the New York Times who suggested a translator and um, in India and she came with us and we spoke to Usha. And my idea was that I would go to India and because by virtue of her education, I thought that's what made her strong and made her stand up. So I thought, okay, maybe the good thing to do is go there and build a school and like provide education for um, the whole community. Yeah. And when I went there and I said, okay, Usha, what do you think? You know, we'll, we'll build a school. And she goes, no, no, kids here have school. They just can't go to school because they have to work to earn uh -huh. enough money for their families. Right. And so what we need to do is we need livelihood training for all of the women in the community. And so, oh, so I was smart. like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. That's what we'll do. So we found an NGO. I interviewed a couple of NGOs, found one that would do the training with Usha. They trained all the women in the community, which was like 150 women, 50 men as well. And I visited it again three years later in the whole community. Like I could not recognize it. It was transformed. Oh it was suddenly like from what was broken down mud huts. And I'll share some photos with you. It was it was horrible and it was dark and people didn't come out of their homes to now like you had these actual structures, you know, real housing structures, colorful, pink, blue, yellow, kids biking. It was like a movie, like transformation. Oh my goodness. It yeah. was incredible. And it was because, and I, and this is what landed us on our model for the foundation. It was because we found a leader in a community that was invested in a community that was determined to do anything to help them that had already moved the needle in some way in her life. So showed that capacity and we followed what she said. And so that's what we do now. So we find leaders around the world and it doesn't have to be any specific location. We go anywhere that the need is and we just find these leaders. And then my executive director and I will always travel. So we do a level of vetting that is you know, from here, we'll interview them. And now it's easier over Zoom, if they have an internet connection, or we do phone. Mm -hmm. And we get as much information from the websites, from the annual reports, from if they have them, and any articles or anything that we can find. And then our last step is actually once they feel like they fit the model of our leaders, we will go and see um, program on the ground, we'll look at the challenges that they face, what's really happening on the ground, how are how is the organization really answering those challenges? What is their level of impact? What is the level of dedication and buy-in of the community? So we look at all of that and um and then we 
assess it and then we come back, report to our board, and then we decide whether or not to take on that organization and leader. And we really found that using this model, and we use it domestically as well, we work in the education space and closing the achievement gap, and also now on criminal justice reform. So we do that here and we find leaders that are working here domestically as well, Philadelphia primarily. And, you know, this brings me to Shama Ween, which um, is just such a fun take on all things Halloween and, and you know, fun and frightful. So um, tell us about that because, and then the philanthropic kind of efforts behind it. Yeah. So um, I never thought that we would fundraise because most of the funding for the foundation has just been personal, like Knight and I. And um, we realized that these leaders really were doing a ton of great work. And um, we felt that the more support that we can get for them, the better. So we started to do this fundraising event. And of course, my husband being my husband, we had to do it around Halloween. (laughs) So we called it Shamaween. Our first um, executive director actually coined that. And it's kind of hokey, but it's stuck and it's cute. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. There's a skill set that I haven't told you about that my husband and I have, which is partying. (laughs) (laughs) that we do like to party we wanted to make it nothing like any of the fundraising events that you usually go to so we didn't want it to be kind of the sit down dinner where you're lectured at or you see this whole thing about the foundation now we do talk a little bit about the foundation our leaders some of our local leaders come and so you do get to meet them and we do introduce them but we want you to have fun like we just wanted to be a super fun night that you won't forget. And so we call it, our tagline is be bad, do good. Costumes are amazing. Every year the costumes have gotten better and better and it's just super fun. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? I love a quote by a Rumi that it says, close your eyes, fall in love and stay there. I think self-love was a journey that's been hard for me. I'm still on it, but I have found the importance of self-compassion and self-love so is so powerful in your life. You know, sometimes people think of it like, especially if you've gone up in the Indian way, you've you're thought, taught so much not to have ego, then you mm-hmm. think it's wrong to think well of yourself, loving yourself. I mean, God, what is that, right? You know? Until you truly accept and have compassion for yourself, and I don't think that you can grow into the person that you really want to be because you, if you're attacking yourself, you tighten and you're fighting yourself. And when you're in fight flight mode, you can't lift, you can't change, you can't grow. So you really have to love yourself into being. Right. the person that you want to be. So that that quote really speaks to me because of that reason. And then the other thing that I've learned, and is not a, the last quote that I really love is by Viktor Frankl, which is, it's something like between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space, you can choose your response. And in that, in that response lies your um, growth and freedom. Mm. And I've really learned now, like, Meditation is something that I've really taken on in the last several years, and it's so powerful. And I think a big part of meditation is finding space between stimulus. It's about growing that space between stimulus and response. 
And when you're able to grow that space between when something happens and how you react, you have so much more control if you allow yourself space to really kind of sit, to decide, to let something be, and to really decide how it is that you want to respond rather than just reacting. So I think it's such a powerful thing. And lastly, where can my audience find you, follow you, and support what you're doing? So for the foundation, they can go mnsfoundation.org. That's our website for Vibe Vault Fit. And we have Mm -hmm. online classes, by the way, if you want them. Um, You can go to Vibe Vault Fit. So V-I-B-E, Vault, V-A-U-L-T, fit.com. I'm also on Instagram and Facebook, just under Bhavna Shyamalan. You can find me. (laughs) That's so great. Bhavna, thank you. Thank you so much. I love that you got to kind of share a bit about yourself. You are an incredible wife, mother, friend, visionary giver um, to the universe. And I'm just, I'm very lucky to know you. Thank you. And thanks for creating this space really to, I think, explore and think, because I think that's such a powerful gift that you're giving, you know, even just in talking with you, I'm learning more and I feel like it's a gift given to me. So thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Bhavna Shyamalan. Bhavna, thank you so much for opening your heart and your mind and sharing all the different perspectives you have on life and motherhood and career and giving back to humanity. You are an inspiration. I do want to promote Shamoween, which is happening on Saturday, October 23rd in Philadelphia. The theme is Be Bad, Do Good. There are various tiers of admission to the event. Uh, there is general admission at $250. VIP starts at $1,500 and goes up to $9,000. And all of the proceeds benefit the MNS Foundation and their efforts to build up communities that are underserved and overlooked. To register for the event, visit the website mnsfoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode on That Total Mom Sense, Definitely rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps, and I love sharing your feedback. Follow me at Kanika Chadda Gupta and at That's Total Mom Sense for updates on all of my distinguished guests. And you can visit thatstotalmomsense.com to watch press and videos and read my articles too. Remember, always trust your mom's sense and your dad's sense. Stay strong, super parents. See you next time. That's total mom sense.